Hey, this is Erin. And Melissa. And we're Trending Spokane, a weekly podcast all about the latest in the Lilac City. Finding out what is happening right now in Spokane can be overwhelming, but not if you're an insider. Join us as we shine light onto the latest happenings and chat about the future of our city. Each episode will introduce you to people you want to know, places you need to visit, and local knowledge you can't live without. We will help you get out and get involved. Episodes are dropping soon, and make sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts now. Deb Conklin is a former senior criminal deputy prosecutor, as well as the former chair of the Office of Police Ombudsman Commission. She is running for the Spokane County Prosecutor and wants to focus on accountability and fiscal responsibility. She is the current pastor of United Methodist Church, and because this race has so many candidates vying for that really important final spot in the November election, the primary election actually has ballots out right now, and it ends in just a few short days. So be sure that you are getting to know your candidates, and we are delighted to have Deb here to talk with us today about the woman behind the headlines, as we've seen so much (laughs) in the recent press with our community, and learn more about how she plans to impact this important office and how it will impact justice in Spokane and beyond. Welcome to Trending Northwest, Deb. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. It Thanks is, so much it for is being a here. To be here. Yeah, and you're running actually as nonpartisan, which did you make that decision to run nonpartisan or is that something that they kind of encourage you to do when you register? No, no. Um that was a choice I made. I actually <laughs> I actually decided that I needed to try to do this four years ago. In 2018, when Larry Haskell ran unopposed, I said, this can't happen. (laughs) Somebody has to run against him. And at that point, I had been a pastor for so long that I had um, discontinued my license. And so I pretty much spent most of the last four years jumping through all the hoops and getting my license current so that I could run. And, and part of the conversation I had with various people about, you know, what I was doing and, and why I was doing it was the conversation about party. And my decision, um, probably close to a year ago was running nonpartisan was the right thing to do as much as anything because this office should be nonpartisan. You know, Washington law, because of the type of county we are, Washington law says all of our races have to be partisan, except, of course, judges. And I'm pretty sure they would have made that partisan, except that the Judicial Code of Ethics says they can't be. (laughs) (laughs) True. Wow. So, um, but when you think about it, the sheriff should be nonpartisan. The prosecutor should be nonpartisan. I love it that um, one of the candidates for auditor is running nonpartisan and making that an issue because she's right. That should be nonpartisan too. So, so it was kind of a choice that I want to make the argument that the prosecutor needs to be nonpartisan. The prosecutor needs to represent all the people to be fair to all the people. doesn't matter whether you're Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. Um, The prosecutor has to be the prosecutor for everybody. And it's such an important role in Spokane County because you have so much influence on the criminal justice system and how justice is served. And ultimately, as a pastor, that's something I know that a lot of the people who you are involved in the lives of care about deeply. And beyond that, our entire community is so impacted by the current crime rates that are rising. Um, we are a lot of people are concerned about um 
social justice measures and how that will impact them in the years to come. There have been so many changes at the national level and the local level that get people worried. So as a candidate for county prosecutor, how do you want to impact how justice is both perceived and distributed as a result of your work? Wow. I could talk about that for the next hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so one of the things you mentioned that I want to pick up on is um, I actually, starting when I was on the Ombuds Commission and, um, you know, chaired it for the last two years, we started going to the annual conference for the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, NACOL. And even after my term on the commission ended, I have kept going to that conference. And I'm now a certified practitioner of oversight, um, certified by this actually international organization. And that's important because the things I learn at those conferences can come back and help inform how we do the work in this county. And I would say the prosecutor is probably the most powerful person in the whole criminal law system. I mean, people think judges are the powerful people, but judges can only work with what you give them. They can't go out and do their own research. They can't go out and find facts for themselves. Judges are dependent on the prosecutor and the defense attorney to give them the information. And the prosecutor is the one who decides what to do with the police reports, decides who to charge, decides what to charge, decides what conditions of release to ask for in the um, first appearance, decides um, whether to offer a plea deal or not. Unfortunately, even gets to decide whether a person can be referred to the therapeutic courts, the mental health court or drug court or the veterans court. I mean, do you know, we have probably the best veterans court in the country. Wow. Like if you talk to Tim Fitzgerald, who's a Republican, um, who's the court clerk, our veterans court has the lowest rate of people repeat offenders in the country wow. and significantly lower. Huh. That's impressive. It's an excellent court. Yeah. And yet we have a prosecutor's office that in spite of what he says, does not want to refer people to our therapeutic courts. So, um, oh, what's her name? Sandra Altschuler, who was the coordinator for those courts until she resigned last winter. She has gone on the record as saying when uh, Larry Haskell took office, the number of referrals to those courts went way down. They have not come back up. His deputies have actually said to her, Larry discourages us from referring people to those courts. He also has a rule, like a rule, that if someone has nine felonies, they can't be referred to those courts without his personal permission, which I'm not sure he's ever given. But it's sort of like, so we don't look at the person, we just count numbers and have a rule. Um, it's very cut and dried, but it doesn't really make sense for the people that are in those positions, right? Because they don't necessarily need to be part of this revolving door if you're if they have access to the therapeutic courts. And maybe they can break this cycle. And one of the critical things is um, the comment that they, they tried treatment and failed. And my response to that is virtually everybody – 
who has a serious addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, you know, prescription or illegal. If you have a serious addiction, you don't succeed the first time. You just don't. I, I've never met anybody who succeeded the first time. So if you don't give them more chances, you're not giving them the possibility of really succeeding. So, so the notion that, oh, they tried it and, and they failed. So we're not going to let them do it again. Just sort of misunderstands how therapeutic courts can be used and what kind of a tool they can be. Well, and with violent offenders in particular, I think that's a big focus for a lot of people in the community is they want to feel safe downtown. They want to feel safe living here in Spokane. And people who just have felony possession charges, if they have nine of those, it's a very different situation than someone who's committed a murder. And you would really hope that that would be looked at so that we're not putting people in jail who are really just struggling, you know, versus somebody who truly is a danger to our community. Well, and the reality is, if you're a serious addict, chances are you have a fair number of yeah. felony drug possession convictions. Of course, it'll be – I hope we don't get to see what Larry would do with the the new rules because of the Blake decision and decriminalizing some of the simple possession stuff. Um, I hope someone else will see how we go forward with that. Um, but, but it does raise an interesting question. Yeah. It would give people a chance to have their lives back. Yeah. The other thing that I, I, I am raising is the media is telling us that we have this rising crime rate, but the data doesn't support it. Mm. And I know people feel like it. I know people are worried. And I know that all three other candidates for this office have been talking about that. But if you look... And you can have these. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I love if you look. So so these are um, data that's been collected from 2015 mm-hmm. to 2020. Mm-hmm. And the problem with 2021 is it takes a while to get the data. And also COVID made some of the data sort of less helpful in terms of long-range planning or predicting. But so if you look at those five years – Three years. Those three years, you'll discover that in both Spokane City and Spokane County, because one of those is the county and one's the city, the crime rate actually was going down hmm. or staying the same. Mm-hmm. So this like national media as well as local media claim that, oh, we have this rising crime rate, we have this horrible problem, people are less safe, is in many ways a media-created problem. Hmm. And people are feeling less safe. And and that bothers me. I don't want people to feel less safe, but I, I want to reassure them that, A, the crime rate isn't suddenly skyrocketing, and B, I absolutely take crime seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have sent people to prison, <laughs> and I am absolutely clear that when someone is a danger to the community, they need to be taken out of the community and put someplace separate, locked up, if you will. And so I would never claim that there aren't people who need to be put in prison. But there are far too many people for whom putting them in jail or prison is not helping, and it's aggravating the issues they have in their life that are why they're committing crimes. Mm 
And so instead of simply locking them in a cell someplace, if we would refer them to the therapeutic courts, if we would put together um, better mental health programs for our community, we could help people get out of the cycle. We talk about the cycle of poverty. We also need to talk about the cycle of criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. It, it, it isn't, it's not something that people are born wanting to do. It's, it's something that happens because of life situations and things like that. One of the things, one of the things that I'm finding deeply disturbing as we go through this campaign and I sit on these panels with the other three candidates is it would appear from what they're saying that all three of the other candidates, once someone is um, arrested, the assumption is that they're guilty. And that's not always true. I mean, the county is being sued right now by someone who was arrested and sat in jail for two weeks and the charges weren't dismissed for another two weeks who had nothing to do with the crime. And he was arrested because some witness found a Facebook picture and said he looked like, found his Facebook picture and said he looked like the person who did it. That was the only evidence they had. And they filed the charges anyway and held him in jail. So so when we talk about pretrial release, when we talk about how we treat people going into court, I keep hearing these things about, oh, they're dangerous, oh, they're this, oh, they're that. Well, we haven't even decided whether they're guilty yet. And, and there's this clear assumption. If you listen to the other three candidates, virtually everything they say assumes that if somebody gets as far as being charged, they're guilty. And and so, you know, one of the discussions has been um, this office charges based on probable cause. And last night at um, the Spokes and Reviews um, event they held, pretty much all three of the other candidates said that is the standard we should be using to charge. My office did not charge, and I would not charge, based on probable cause. We did not file charges unless we had proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And one of the reasons for that is, and Larry disagreed with me, but but I don't know how he runs his office, because in our office, by the time you filed charges, you pretty much knew what your evidence was going to be. Because, you know, we only have a certain amount of time before we have to go to trial. We can't charge somebody and hold them in jail for two years while we put a case together. We're not allowed to do that. And so when when Larry said, and I'm pretty sure this is exactly what he said, the case develops after we file it. We don't know all of the evidence when we file it. The case continues to develop. And I'm just kind of going, I don't know how you do that because – once you file those charges, you're on the way to either trial or a plea or a plea bargain. And so my training was, if you don't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt, you don't charge it. Because when you're charging cases based on probable cause, a whole lot of them are going to fall apart. And then you're going to either have to just dismiss them or you're going to have to plea bargain. So you're almost setting yourself up to require plea bargains when you charge based on probable cause. 
And then you also have, and someday I hope someone does a study of how many people have pled guilty to a misdemeanor or a gross misdemeanor who aren't guilty. Mm -hmm. Because in the vast majority of cases, by the time they enter their guilty plea, they get out of jail immediately because they've already done all the time that they would have to serve if they went to trial. But because they're being held in jail rather than on pretrial release, they just plead guilty to, to get out of jail. And how does that end up affecting our community when people take plea bargains instead of having the charges dismissed or not going at all in your case? Well, and in particular, how does that affect people who are already stressed Yes. either because of poverty or because of addiction or because of mental health issues? They're already stressed and they're in jail a place they feel like they don't deserve to be. And in some cases, <laughs> they're right. Maybe not in every case, obviously not in every case, but in some cases, they're right. And so they end up with a criminal history because they're so stressed and they need to get out of jail. But then, of course, their life gets difficult because it's hard to rent a place to live. It's hard to get a job. Your whole life gets more difficult because you now have this conviction. So the whole system makes life difficult for people. I really want to go shopping. Will you please go vintage shopping with me? Where do you want to go vintage shopping, Erin? Well, the best place in Monroe District to go vintage shopping, 1889. Ah, uh, Okay. If it's 1889, I'm definitely going to be there because they have a lot of cool stuff that even I'm into. And I'm not a huge vintage person. Yeah. 1889 Salvage Co. is my favorite. This is one of the most diverse, incredible vintage stores in the entire region. And one of those reasons is because they give so much back to local charities and do a lot of really great work supporting the animal shelter and all kinds of other initiatives that make the city of Spokane a more wonderful place to live. Absolutely. And I love the fact that there's like different sections in the store where it has different items. So like there's a barware section and there's a clothing yeah. section. And then every like what month it seems like they have new rotating displays too of all mm -hmm. the different vintage items. They're absolutely gorgeous. So if you want to stock your bar with the coolest barware that will get every one of your friends talking, or if you want to wear clothes that really make you stand out, you definitely want to check out 1889. And Gina, the owner, is such a sweetheart. She really cares about Spokane and gives back to so many local charities. So be sure to check that out on 1889salvageco.com. It sounds like this ties into your uh, fiscal responsibility, too, because not only would you not necessarily be uh, sued, would your office, if you were to win, uh, be sued by people who are held with no charges or no evidence, um, but also the fiscal responsibility back into our community. Because like you said, someone who's sitting there and is waiting for a plea bargain isn't working, probably lost their job. Then they get out, have all the problems with rent and finding another job. If we didn't even have that in the first place, it sounds like there would be more fiscal responsibility in the community as well. So can you talk a little bit about your, your fiscal responsibility platform? So the fiscal responsibility starts from day one. We have... Uh, one piece of the MacArthur Grant. So MacArthur Grant, the MacArthur Foundation has granted Spokane County a total of $4.7 million over the last six years. And that grant is specifically focused on reducing the jail population and reducing the racial disparities in the all the statistics around the criminal court system. 
And one part of that grant in particular is $400,000 for a supported release program. And in February of this year, there was an article in the spokesman and, and it, it, the writer, and I can't remember his name, but, but he did this phenomenal job of talking about the philosophical divide. And on the one side, you have the prosecutor who's claiming that this is dangerous and expensive and opens the, the, county up to liability. And on the other side, you have the judges and the community and the defense attorneys saying, this will save us money. This will help people put their lives together. This is effective. This is proven. Larry now says that he's changed his mind, that they took another look at it and he's supporting it. But at the time, he was definitely throwing a monkey wrench into supported release. And supported release is a way for someone who has been arrested, who has committed some sort of, um, has been some, making some bad decisions. Whether they committed a crime or not, they're making some bad decisions. And supported release is a way for them to start putting their life back together. It's a way for them to not spend their time in jail and to get out and start engaging in the programs that they need to engage in with support. And if we took that $400,000 and spent that on supported release, then that's, depending on whose figures you use, somewhere is around $150 a day that we're not spending keeping that person in jail. And that money can then be leveraged to help um, expand the capacity in our programs. So in our mental health court and our drug court. So, so we can leverage that money into improving our programs, but instead we have a prosecutor's office that becomes the roadblock to all of these things. And, um, and I truly think when you have three candidates who all see these people as guilty and dangerous before they ever go to trial, it discourages them from saying, okay, what can we put together as a program that's really going to benefit the community and benefit the accused and benefit the system? So, so that's just one issue. Um, another problem is, and, and I happen to think that some of the reason that you have um, the sheriff and the prosecutor promoting this crime is skyrocketing and we're all in danger is because they want a new jail. They want a big new jail. The problem with that is until we have a system that looks at alternatives to jail, until we do the work that the MacArthur grant was supposed to help us do, we don't know what we need in jail capacity. So I suspect we probably need a new jail because the one we have is old. I've heard they have black mold issues. It's a problem. But we can't talk about even planning for a new jail until we know how much jail we need. And we can't know how much jail we need until we have someone in the prosecutor's office who sets policies and procedures that presume a person is innocent until a proven guilty, that looks at pretrial release options, so including supervised um, supported release, we could do home monitoring, which we haven't embraced. There are all kinds of ways to save money and keep people out of jail and reduce the need for an expensive, larger jail. 
Yeah. And warehousing people hasn't really proven to be effective in any form of either justice or mental health care or any of that. So I, I love hearing from you that you are not only looking forward toward better solutions, but also evidence-based solutions that we know are proven to be effective and can reduce the need for a huge capacity, giant, brand new facility. So um, with that in mind, I know that for a lot of our listeners, they're thinking, gosh, pastor to prosecutor, that is a significant <laughs> shift. So you've alluded to it a couple of times, but if you speak directly to this, what made you want to run for Spokane County prosecutor? Actually, let's go back and talk about pastor to pro- or prosecutor to pastor, yeah. because I ran into one of the people I worked with about, I don't know, five years into being a pastor, and, and she said to me, how do you go from prosecutor to pastor? What about accountability? You know, how do you become all about forgiveness? And I said, so, I absolutely believe in forgiveness. I believe in grace, but forgiveness... For, for the transgressor, in order to be forgiven, one needs to confess and do penance. I happen to believe in grace. So, so I think, you know, there is unlimited, unmerited grace. So we all um, get more grace than we deserve. But... Being a pastor doesn't automatically mean you don't believe in accountability. The way I come at it is actually um, from the point that when you commit a crime, the victim is really the whole community. Crime is an injury to the community, not just to an identified victim. And so um, Stephanie Collins says she has this great program for accountability for offenders, and she wants them to sit down and, you know, admit they did it and put together a plan and say how they're going to put their life back together. And I worry because it feels like someone who has read some um, some articles on restorative justice without really understanding how restorative justice works. Because restorative justice, which I've actually been studying for at least 30 years, um, because I was a philosophy major and studied philosophy of law, and restorative justice is one of my interests. Restorative justice isn't just the offender saying, yes, I did it, and here's how I'm going to fix it. Restorative justice is about the accused, the community, the victim and some people from the system sitting down together and talking about how this action damaged the community, how the community has been broken and how we're going to fix the community. And that includes what the accused is going to do. And sometimes when you take a restorative justice approach, you find out that the person actually isn't really guilty. Mm. So, you know, there can be extenuating circumstances. Or more likely, you found out, for example, that um, you have someone who is shoplifting because their kids were hungry. So let's, as a community, say, how do we repair this damage that was done? Not just because somebody took something from the store without paying for it, but this family is going hungry. How do we fix that? 
So, so I worry that we might be like heading down this pseudo restorative justice path without really understanding that if we really want to do restorative justice, it's going to take time and it's going to take energy and it's going to take a change in the mindset. And really the reason that I chose to run for prosecutors because our office needs deep culture change. We need a change in the culture in that office. This is an office in which there seems to be a clear presumption that someone is guilty the minute they're arrested, that everyone who gets arrested is dangerous and needs to be locked up. Um, there's a presumption that if two years of prison isn't going to fix them, then five years might. You know, the notion that let's just lock them up as long as we can. And you'll hear them say things about programs while they're incarcerated or programs upon release. I think uh, I think it's Stephanie Olson who said she would like to see some post-release help putting their lives back together. But I don't have a sense that that's a deep commitment, that, that it's part of their outlook their their fundamental approach to how they do this because i've heard all three of them say we need to um we need to pursue charges and we need to get convictions and we need to make people pay and so for me there's there's a mindset there that is not going to change easily. And so I think we need someone from outside, like me, who can come in and introduce a whole new culture around how we look at crime, how we look at criminals, and how we think about community safety. Because I absolutely think it's important for the community to feel safe and to be safe. I, as I've already said, I think the community is safer than it feels like it is. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not safe. I mean, I'm one of those people who's had somebody twice now break the window in my car and steal my stuff. I I get it. It's hard. And for me, it's always, there's never anything in there that's valuable enough so my insurance will even pay for it (laughs) because I don't leave a lot of stuff in my car. But both times there's been something with sentimental value that's gone. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, that's hard. So, So I get it. We don't like crime. But we also shouldn't have our leaders causing us to live in fear that there's some horrendous increase in the crime rates. I'm not afraid when I walk downtown at night. And that's important. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I'm not exactly, you know, I can't run as fast as I used to. You know, I I would be someone who's at a fair amount of risk if someone was really dangerous. But yeah, I don't I don't be. walk yeah, down the street no. and and feel afraid. Yeah. Um, the one time, the only time I have ever really been afraid on the streets of Spokane at night was um, the night after the Black Lives Matter protests that went from downtown out to the courthouse, and then people kind of we all walked back through town. Um, because our cars were down here. And that evening after dark, the people, um, as we walked through downtown, there were all of these young men in camouflage with these rifles 
that were not just hunting rifles. I mean, I'm not an expert on guns, but they looked to me like assault weapons yeah. or high-powered rifles. They were. I saw that. It was it was wild. And they weren't they weren't protesters. They were counter-protesters, as I remember. Is that so? Is they that they were not protesters. They claimed that they were there to help keep the peace downtown. Hmm. But for me, when someone who is not trained doesn't have authority or accountability, is walking around downtown with a high-powered rifle, I'm not going to stay there. And I didn't. I went home. Yeah. Um, and I just, I mean, I find those more worrisome than any of the people who are sitting, lying, living on the streets. I oh, just, right. That, I don't know why that's such an issue every day. And we, we run into that on Facebook all the time, that our homeless population is the biggest problem that we are encountering in Spokane today. But, I, you know, with our big hearts and really caring about people and understanding how that happens, we know that that's not the reality. And for this, to to wrap this up beautifully in a nice little bow, and this is where I want to make sure that I give you, you know, the, the, the time to think through exactly where you want to send people, whether it's your Facebook or your Instagram or whatever. Um, where can voters get more information about any upcoming events and follow your campaign um, so that they can be informed for this important primary election? Sure. The most active place to go would be my Facebook page, which is Deb for Spokane on Facebook. Um, the other place that has some some important background things, including things like endorsements and things like that, would be the website, which is www.debforspokane.com. And that's for F-O-R instead of the yes, number yes, four. Yes. We, we had that conversation and decided not to get cute. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is an important office after all, so yes. why not spell it yes. out? Well, we are so grateful that you took the time to come on the podcast. I know you must be exhausted after these many events and interviews <laughs> and you know debates that you've been participating in lately. And for those of you who are listening, we are so grateful that you also spent time with us to get to know all three of these candidates for this important position of possibly replacing um, Larry Haskell, who's the current county prosecutor. So be sure to listen to all of the information we presented you, make an intelligent decision for what you feel best represents your values. And we look forward to seeing what happens on August 2nd. Is that right? The day? Yes. Yes, August 2nd, when we know who will be moving forward to the next round, so to speak, for the November final election. And please vote. Yes. Oh, most of all, please vote. Get out there. You don't even have to leave your house. This is the best part about Washington State. Yes, your ballot was mailed to you. It's in your mailbox. If you somehow misplaced it, make sure you get a replacement. But we really would love to see every single person in Spokane County vote for this. And there's drop boxes at libraries. So, you know, if you're stopping the library, getting a video, a book, whatever you get at libraries, go ahead and drop it off there. And if you're not yet registered, there is still time to register. Yes, please register to vote. It is a very simple process. And then you know you're ready for all of the elections that we have coming up. So thank you so much for coming in today. And we look forward to seeing what happens on August 2nd.